the question that I would like to answer this morning is if the presence of God is within the church, how do we, as the church, show His glory? And my prayer for this morning is that we would increasingly, more and more, show the glory of God in our lives and in our church. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are the God who spoke light into existence out of darkness. And I pray that you would show your light today in our church now through the word that you have inspired. I ask this in the name of Jesus because of his blood. And I ask it boldly and I pray that you would do it now. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are continuing our journey through Exodus in Exodus chapter 33 today, and I would encourage you to turn there. Exodus is right at the beginning of the Bible. You can find chapter 33, and we will go through the entire chapter today. Last week, I preached a very serious message about our need for repentance and calling on the Lord for His presence and power in our church. And if you did not hear it, let me encourage you to get a copy of it and listen to it. You can ask me for one after service and I'll get you one this week. I urged faithful prayer for our church. And I did that because I believe that these chapters in Exodus are incredibly pertinent to our church and we need to learn from them for the glory of Jesus and for the health of our church. Let me say a word at the beginning about glory itself. Glory is what shows God to be incredibly precious and incredibly valuable. So when I say I want the glory of Jesus to shine out from our church, what I mean is it should be incredibly obvious that the most precious thing we have is our Savior. And so the most incredible thing that anyone could say after visiting our church is the presence of God was clearly there. Jesus was magnified. He was more precious than anything else. And so I'll remind you in Exodus chapter 32, which we looked at last week, Israel commits one of the gravest sins in all of Scripture. Moses has been on the mountain in the presence of God, learning what it means to follow God and for Israel to be God's people. And the people, while they are waiting for Moses at a distance, grow impatient and they break their sacred promise to God and they worship an idol in his place and they give that image credit for what the living God had done in saving them and delivering them. And so God threatens to destroy his people in his righteous judgment and to keep his promises to Abraham through Moses. And so you find Moses pleading on behalf of the people that God would relent and that they would be saved. And God does relent and disaster does not fall on the entire nation. But then as Moses goes and sees the people worshiping a dumb idol for himself with his own eyes, he takes the tablets that have the Ten Commandments written on them 
These are the terms of the covenant. This is the written promise that the people make to abide by God's laws that seals the covenant. They are really the symbol of the promises that God has made to Israel and Israel has made to God. He takes those tablets and he dashes them to pieces. This is very similar to taking your marriage license out in the middle of an argument and lighting a match to it. Or throwing your wedding ring to the bottom of a lake. It says, this relationship is broken and there is nothing left here. But the fantastic news of Exodus chapter 34, where we are today, is that God forgives sinners. God forgives sinners. Let me say this today. If you left discouraged last week, do not stay discouraged. We can have great joy as we fight for the glory of God. One of the surprising and remarkable things about the book of Exodus, if you've ever read through it from beginning all the way to end, is that God gives instructions for worship in the tabernacle not once, but twice. And it may even seem like a burden as you're trying to read through and you wonder, dear Lord, why is this here twice? And what is a cubit? The reason it's there twice is because the failure that Israel experiences happens after those instructions are given the first time. So you can imagine if you've ever embraced God's plan for your life and you feel like this is what's happening and I know what God wants for me and this is what I will do and then some catastrophe happens. Maybe you're responsible for it, maybe you're not. But it seems like the plan of God has been derailed, that there's no hope and no future and that things are coming to an end. That's what happened to Israel. They had the plan of God for worship in and among their people. And that plan seemed like it came to an end as those tablets were crushed as Moses threw them down. But even the failure of God's people does not stop his plans and his promises. And the hope that we have today is entirely because God forgives sinners. They show, these instructions, that even colossal moral failure does not prevent Israel from being God's people. He did not choose them because they were great or morally good. He chose them because they were weak. And when in weakness they failed, he forgave them. And all of the things that he promised to do through them, he did. Not one of God's promises failed. And that is our hope as Christians. Not only because we inherit the promises that Israel inherits through Christ, but because we have richer and better promises. And that is our hope as believers, and that is our hope as First Baptist Church of Holly. Jesus said, I will build my church. And he will. And you can count on it. So this morning, I want to look at the glory of God, the covenant of God, and the reflection of God. And it is my prayer that we would all 
have great hope and confidence and that we too can reflect God's glory no matter what your past is or what our past is, that moving forward people would know how precious and valuable God is because of how much we love it. So first of all, look with me at Exodus chapter 34 verses 1 through 9. And I've entitled this point in my outline, The Glory of God. But don't miss the reality that we have hope because of God's glory. Because of the things that make him precious and valuable. And so our hope is in the glory of God. Read with me Exodus 34 verses 1 through 9. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself. Two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. And he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us For your inheritance. God's mercy as revealed in his name means that he will always forgive when we repent. Always. 100% of the time. You might wonder what God means when he says that he will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the children's children, to the third and the fourth generations. That is because... Sin always has consequences. God is not saying that he will not allow them to repent. Where there is repentance, there is always forgiveness. The emphasis in what God says is his steadfast love and faithfulness are abounding. They are for thousands. He loves to forgive iniquity and transgression and sin. But if there is no repentance, that sin will continue to destroy. And it's the mercy of God that brings that destruction to an end. But there is always the opportunity for repentance. And so as Moses has continued to pray and plead on behalf of the people, when God reveals his glory to him and shows who he is and passes by and proclaims his name, he says, I am the God who forgives and there is mercy here. And I believe that we can and we must 
plead that mercy again and again for ourselves and for our church and rest in the goodness of a God who forgives. We do not have to fear that our prayers will be unanswered because God has promised that he will forgive. He always forgives when we repent. And so the mercy of God is a large part of the glory of God. When we go out and proclaim God's glory to people, one of the things that glorifies God is forgiven sinners. Forgiven sinners show the character and kindness of God. And so when we celebrate our own forgiveness, and when we celebrate God's power and ability to save, and when we look at another sinner and we don't see someone that we despise, but we see someone that God loves and can save, and we begin to be excited that God can and will save anyone, that glorifies God. We should be excited for the mercy of God and recognize his power and ability to save and praise him for it and thank him for it and spread that glory everywhere we go. So the first thing you see today for fallen and frail sinners is the glory of God makes forgiveness possible. And that leads to God's response to this prayer. Notice Moses' request at the end of this, based on what God has just said. Moses says, okay, I hear you, Lord. I hear that you're merciful. So I'm going to ask again, please go with us. Take us for your people. Let your presence be here. I believe, man, that should be our prayer today. And notice, notice God's response in The covenant renewed, the covenant of God. And I'm going to break this into two separate parts because first we see the things that God will do and then we see the things that God requires. So first of all, notice with me the things that God will do in God's reply. God says, behold, I am making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. I wrote in my Bible, I pray that this would be true of our church, that it would be an awesome thing that God does today and every day, and that the whole world, through our missionaries and through the church universal, would have no choice but to admit that God is powerful, that God is awesome. And so God says, I am making a covenant. I am making promises. I will do these things. And at the end of the message today, the amazing news that I have for us is that the promises that we have in Christ are even greater than the promises that he made to Israel. And so our hope is even richer and fuller. And we understand and can reflect God's glory even more than the children of Israel could, even more than the face of Moses did. But notice first the things that he requires the people to do in verse 11 all the way down through verse 28. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. So he's saying, your covenant is with me 
do not rest in anything else. He says, you shall tear down their altars and shall break their pillars and cut down their asherim for you shall worship no other God for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice and you take of their daughters for your sons and their daughters whore after their gods and make your sons whore after their gods. You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal, you shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread as I commanded you at the time appointed in the month of Abib. For in the month of Abib you came out of Egypt. All that open the womb are mine. All your male livestock, the firstborn of the cow and sheep, the firstborn of a donkey, you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. You shall observe the feast of weeks, the first fruits of wheat harvest, and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. For I will cast out the nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened or let the sacrifice of the feast of Passover remain until morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. God requires simply really three things of his people. They must worship him faithfully and him alone. He warns of the danger of mixing with unbelievers so that you learn to value the same things that unbelievers value so that there ends up being no difference and in the end gradually you forsake the Lord your God. Idolatry does not start out obviously It starts out with a casual slide, with a willingness to accept and embrace things that God says are wrong, and eventually ends with completely forsaking the God that saved us. And so he warns them, you worship me alone. Do not tolerate the worship of any other God. Do not make any image to worship me. Worship me alone. So that's the first thing. He requires faithfulness. He requires that they remember his salvation in Passover and that they celebrate his goodness in regular feasts and in rest on the Sabbath every single week. No matter if they are in the midst of harvest, the rest says God is the one who provides. And so he requires obedience. He requires that they keep his feasts that they remember what he does. And he requires their gifts. He requires their worship. I could say a word about the things that God requires of us, and yet 
here is the biggest possible place for misunderstanding in all of Exodus. The temptation is to say, God requires our obedience in the same way. And God does require our obedience, but not in the same way. Our promises are far more precious than what God has said he would do in Israel because of his covenant. The covenant that we have, you remember the words Jesus spoke, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. The covenant that Jesus institutes is far more precious than this. Here, the law of God is inscribed on tablets of stone and everyone was required to know it and to obey it. But in the covenant that you and I have, Jesus' obedience, not the law, is what makes us right before God. The law is not outside us, carved on Ten Commandments. Rather, the Spirit of God is given to everyone who trusts in Christ for salvation. And the Spirit of God is teaches us internally to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and teaches us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. The temptation of every Christian is to make a, a list of rules, to memorize them, and through willpower and commitment to force themselves to do that. But because of Jesus' obedience, the thing that we do now is we look to Jesus Christ. If you struggle to obey in any aspect, you look to Christ and remember what he's done for you and the love that rises in your heart because of Jesus' sacrifice will help you obey. The Holy Spirit is a teacher. The Holy Spirit will help you learn and grow. So your relationship with God does not depend on obeying the commandments. Your relationship with God depends on Jesus Christ. It depends on his blood. And your growth as a Christian depends on remembering what Jesus did for you. That's why the reality of the Spirit in you that's why 1 John so clearly teaches that it is impossible for a believer to remain in sin. It was very possible for an ancient Israelite to be comfortable in sin. He did not have the Spirit of God in him, but we have God's Spirit in us, and so our hearts are deeply distressed when we realize our own unfaithfulness. Are you miserable today? You don't have to raise your hand. I'm not looking for a show of hands. But are you miserable today? That may, may be a good thing if it leads you to confess sin and obey the Lord. Because the promises of our covenant depend on Christ. The only thing for us to do is to confess sin and rest in him. And as we look to Christ, then we learn to obey from the inside out. That's why in the beginning of Revelation, Jesus actually scolds a church with incredibly strong words, a church that's well known for its good works and for its faithful doctrine. He scolds them because they have left their first love. They were not enjoying Jesus. They became proud of their works and of their history. 
And Jesus is incredibly stern with them. He threatens their church and the life of their church because they have forsaken him who gave them that life. They no longer love the Lord Jesus above anything and everything else. They are proud of their own history and their own works and their faithfulness to doctrine. And their right doctrine is dead because it's disconnected from the Lord. I think it would be helpful at this point to ask, when you talk about our church, what do you brag about? Do you brag about our good works and the things that we do for the community? Do you brag about the group of friends that makes you feel welcome and accepted? Or do you brag about Jesus Christ? Do you brag about the forgiveness of sins that is available through Christ? Do you brag that people come here and meet Jesus and their lives are changed because our hope is in him? Do you brag about what Jesus is doing right now? If you are afraid for your future or for the future of our church, here is what I believe we need to do. We need to praise Jesus. We need to lift up his name. He has done all the work in his perfect obedience. He perfectly obeyed the law that God laid out for Moses. His perfect obedience and atoning death have accomplished all of the work. And so today we can confess our sins, cast down our anxieties, and worship him with joy. And that is how the glory of God shines out from our church. But before we leave today, we need to see the glory on the face of Moses so that I can show how we have something even better and more precious. So my last point today is the reflection of God. And I I didn't mention, I titled this sermon, The Glory of God in Sinners. Because sinners like me and sinners like you reflect God's glory in an even greater way than Moses did. So first we have to see how Moses did this. Let's look at the reflection of God in Moses. On verse 29 here. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. This sounds strange. But I think it only sounds strange because glory itself is a strange concept for us. But that doesn't make it unreal. I believe all of us have experienced some sort of glory. And all of us long for more of it. 
And the more you know the Lord, the more you understand what it is, and you cannot get enough of it. For Moses, this glory comes from being in the presence of God, and it's a beautiful thing because it shows all of the people that God has not left them, and God will remain with them. Sometimes it's said that you and I should have a noticeable difference on our faces because we spend time with the Lord, and I believe that's true. I believe that is true. But I think there's actually something better and more precious for us to hold on to today. And that's why I asked that we would read from 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and 4. Because it shows that we also reflect God's glory. In fact, Paul says, to a greater degree than Moses did. Now my face isn't glowing, and your face isn't glowing. So how is it true that we show God's glory in a greater and more powerful way than what Moses experienced on the mountain? Well, let me ask you this. Do you remember the peace of having your sins forgiven? Do you remember the joy of fellowship with God? That you were right with God. That you could not deny your past sin and that God loved you and saved you in spite of it. That's a taste of glory. Paul says, the ministry of the Spirit, the Spirit that is in you, that leads you to confess your sins, that ministry has even more glory. He said, the law brought condemnation, but the Spirit brings righteousness. We reflect God's glory when we turn from sin and walk in obedience to the praise and glory of Jesus. That's why Paul says he constantly proclaims the good news of Jesus. We radiate God's glory when we love him and when we celebrate him, especially when things look dark and discouraging. That's why Paul said in verse 11 of 2 Corinthians 4, we who live are always being given over to death For Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. When you have joy, when you should not, from a worldly perspective, that glorifies God. It shows how precious and powerful he is. And if that doesn't make sense, let me remind you of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. Do you remember the stoning of Stephen, what the Bible says happened as he died? He was stoned for no other reason than he was a follower of Jesus who testified that Jesus is the Messiah. And the Jewish leaders of the day who crucified Jesus continued to hate Jesus and they took him outside the city and Paul was among them when this happened and they stoned him to death and as rocks crushed his body and broke his bones and caused him to bleed, what happened to his face? It was radiant. It shone with the glory of Jesus. The glory of Jesus was reflected in his death because his hope was in King Jesus who overcame death. You might have looked at him and said he had a great future here on earth. Maybe he had a family. Maybe he had kids. And maybe he did. But he was holding on to something better and more lasting than an earthly life. And his face showed the glory of God because his sins were forgiven and he was looking at his Savior. 
The song In Christ Alone puts it like this. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final death, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man could ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. And when we stand in the power of Christ, we reflect his glory. To quote another hymn, when all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. When we show that same glory, not only in the moment of death, but in every bit of suffering leading up to it, the life of Jesus, our hope and our glory, is most obvious in us when we should be hopeless and full of fear. We show His glory when we are confident in Him that His work will give us eternal life. Are you hopeful today? You can be. Because Jesus said, I will build my church. There is great hope. There is great hope for you. There is great hope for me. There is hope for our church. His name is King Jesus. May we spread that hope far and wide today and every day until Jesus returns. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we want to magnify Jesus right now. Lord, some of us, our hearts are broken, and we need to remember what Jesus has done. Some of us long to see you work here in our church with incredible power, and I pray that you would. And I ask that above all, we would show your glory by showing the world the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray we would do it today. I pray that we would do it this week. And I pray that we would do it until Jesus comes home. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.